Hey there, listeners. This is Jasmine Aguilera, head of audio at the LA Times. Thank you so much for following and listening to LA Times podcasts, like Asian Enough. You'll still be able to find Asian Enough on your favorite podcast platforms, but starting April 11th, you're going to see a new show popping up in your feed. It's called Foretold. Foretold follows the story of Paulina Stevens, a Romani woman who was raised with the assumption that she would leave school, marry young, and become a fortune teller. Her fate seemed pretty certain until she decided to leave it all behind. With Paulina's story as a starting point, Foretold will take you past the neon psychic signs and trendy tarot cards to unravel myths and stereotypes that have followed the Romani people for centuries. If you follow Asian enough, you already follow Foretold. Be among the first to hear episode one on April 11th and keep following for new episodes every Tuesday. Can a fortune teller change your fate? Find out on Foretold, a new podcast from the LA Times. From the Los Angeles Times, this is Asian Enough. Each week on this podcast, we talk to one Asian American guest about the joys, the complications, and everything else that comes along with being Asian American. I'm one of your hosts, Tracy Brown. And I'm your other host, Jen Yamato. Today, we are joined by my friend, Jenny Yang, the actor, writer, comedian, and roustabout, according to a delightful internet video in which she interviews the quote-unquote Asian magic mic. Jenny is currently a writer for HBO Max's Gordita Chronicles, about a Dominican family that moves to Miami in the 80s. Last year, Jenny launched Comedy Crossing, a hit stand-up comedy show held inside the adorable world of the Animal Crossing video game. Since June of 2020, the show has raised nearly $40,000 for Black Lives Matter and other mutual aid causes. You can find Jenny on the internet, talking about important issues like representation, voting rights, allyship, anti-Asian hate, and Asian-American excellence. Excellence! I really hope that we continue to not give a fuck and just demand our space. You know what I mean? We need to stop self-censoring, stop asking for permission, give ourselves the permission to pitch the stories we want to see, make the things we want to make, and to accept nothing less. Plus, Jenny tells us about her past life as a labor organizer and how that foundation led to and informed her career in comedy. Basically, there's nothing she can't do. Pretty much. So get ready for the Jenny Yangpire, that's what I'm calling it. That and so much more with the one and only Jenny Yang after the break. Stay with us. Okay, so I'm going to hit record and uh, we're going to let this baby roll. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here's our conversation with comedian Jenny Yang. One quality I really appreciate uh, about you, Jenny, is your ability to bring joy into any room that you enter. Oh, Jen, put that on my epitaph. Oh, my God. Give me a little hammer and a, and a chisel. I'll yeah. Put it on there. Oh, that's like the greatest compliment because there's just too many bummer things in life. It's like... I get to make people laugh and be a comedian. So that's like pretty cool. So thank you for being here. (laughs) I'm so glad to be here. Let's find the joy together, all Uh, of us. Yes, 2021. (laughs) 
Is it a continuation of 2020? We haven't decided yet. We're more than halfway over now. I know. <laughs> I think we need to make some calls on that. I don't know yet. Um, well, I mean, to get us started, right, you mentioned being a comedian. And my number one question always is, how do you comedy? How do you, how do you comedy on purpose without embarrassment or shame or, you know, most of all, like, how do you comedy and make a point? Oh, God, that's like so much. I feel like that's a whole series of podcasts. <laughs> um, how do you comedy and make a point? How do you comedy, period, without shame? Well, I think you have to be shameless. I mean, that's number one. I feel like there is a very special type of person who decides that every day they want to go on stage and, you know, make people like them. And that is torture for most people, public speaking. But I feel like if you're a comedian, you have to have a kind of a sick satisfaction and like the challenge of getting people to uh, go your way every time you are in front of them. It's um, compulsive, probably, obsessive, <laughs> possibly. It requires therapy. I, but for sure, I feel like there is a sort of uh, architecture of your personality that needs to feel like the reward overpowers the risks. Okay, so you did stand up for... I think over a decade. A, yeah. A oh really my God. Time, I know. Oh, right? it's, it, it feels, I still feel new, but yes, I technically I'm t about 10 or 11 years in now. Okay. So when did you first realize, like first time in your entire life, when did you first realize that you could make people laugh? Oh gosh. I mean, I probably first realized that when I was uh, voted most obnoxious in my high school band. But is that a was that a compliment? No, it was probably not positive, but I'm like whatever. I guess it's a superlative from high school. No, um I you know, when I go back to like how I figured out I was funny, I think I always liked being a little mischievous even though I got good grades, you know what I mean? Like did you guys ever have like grades where it was like academics and it's like A through F, but like there's a citizenship grade. Do you remember that? Oh, it's like a participation grade. It was like E and S and I don't remember, but yeah. yeah. E for excellent, S for satisfactory. I frequently got A's and frequently got S's for satisfactory because it was always like satisfactory. Jenny talks too much in class. <laughs> so I was always like making little cracks, but doing well in school. So I feel like I, I got away with it, you know? You know, when I look back, I'm like, oh, you know, I really used humor to my advantage in high school when I was like a big student government nerd and I ran for, you know, student council and it was like a mandatory meeting for all of the, the entire school to watch us do speeches. And if you were funny, you got voted, you know, you got voted in. So that was like probably the first time I consciously understood the power of being funny. Did it work? Oh, yeah. I was in student council for all four years and I became student body president. <laughs> Girl, I know how to make an agenda. OK, she knows how to facilitate a meeting. <laughs> I was a nerd, then a jock. Wait, what kind of jock were you? I played soccer. I was a captain of the soccer oh, excuse team me? and the captain of the softball team. Oh, my God. You were a jock. Well, I played volleyball, too. So I was kind of a jock. I know. It was a whole thing. This is a thing that people don't understand. Like I grew up in Southern California and I grew up in Torrance, bordering like Gardena and Carson. And I grew up around a lot of Asian Americans, a lot of Latinx folks, Pacific Islanders, Black folks. And like, I didn't understand 
the stereotypes of Asians until I went to college. And it was like a majority white place because I grew up around Asian Americans. It was like Sweet Valley High, but Asian and with like boba. You know what I mean? Like, so people don't understand that, like, I could do all of it. I could like be in student council. I could be in band. I could get good grades and I could still play sports. Like the people I looked up to who are cool and popular all also kind of look like me, you know? Wow. I know. I know. I mean, it's true. We don't really hear that story that often. No, it's like better luck tomorrow and always be my maybe collashed. And that was like how I grew up. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> um, I grew up in Long Beach and I spent a lot of time in Torrance because that's where, right? That's where all the Japanese Americans are. Yes. Yeah, Torrance or Gardena. So I definitely like very much relate to that experience. Right? Mm-hmm. Like I feel like when you, especially when you cover entertainment in the industry, there's so many people from outside of Southern California who come here to do their work. And sometimes when they talk amongst each other, they're like, oh my God, no one's from LA. And I'm like, no, bitch, I am. <laughs> so are all the people I grew up with. So are other people that I know who are in comedy, like I always love finding out that they grew up in LA, you know? I'm actually, so I I have to put an addendum on this like nostalgia, what I was in in high school. I am now a lapsed jock, but Tracy is is an actual jock. And this is my moment, my opportunity that I'm seizing to tell the world that Tracy is like a champion dodgeball player, (gasps) which I recently found out. (laughs) Tracy, that's so hot. Just aggressive ball throwing. Yes. Yep. Throwing, catching. It's co-ed. So there's boys, there's girls. Can we, I mean, do you care to share what league it is? <laughs> sure. Um, I I moved back to LA after trying, you know, life abroad. And then when you're when you're an adult, it's hard to find friends, right? It's hard to make friends yeah. Yeah. Um, unless you already knew them in college or you meet them at work. So I joined a recreational dodgeball league in West Hollywood. Uh, West Hollywood dodgeball oh, yeah. still exists. Nice. It's huge. And uh, I made most of my, like, adult friends there. Like, I got my job That's at awesome. the Times through a dodgeballer. Like, yes. <laughs> no, I for a hot second, I had some friends who played in a dodgeball league and I wanted to go, but I was just too busy. But yeah, that's so exciting to <laughs> me. I'm a joiner, you know. I was student body president, so I want people joining things. Um, well, I mean, we've established, right? We established you're funny, obviously. And, um, you, oh, thanks. <laughs> we, yes, this is a known fact. This is already fact. a known fact. We know this. Um, and you, you know, you obviously like making people laugh, but you also pursued a more traditional career path outside of entertainment first, like working as a labor organizer. Yes. Um, can you walk us through that choice and also just the switch? Oh, yeah. Um, I feel like I'm talking about it more now, but one of the things that I first did My first true calling, uh, which hasn't gone away, is trying to save the world. You know, when you're 21, you're just like, what should I do? But I think what I did was I kind of took that student council leadership nerdiness and in college finally realized that leadership is a tool and not an ends in and of itself. And so therefore, what am I leading for? And, you know, because I went to Swarthmore College, a very capital L liberal college outside of Philadelphia, You know, it was like a lot of social justice politics. I became a student activist and it was it was a it was a realization that the world has a certain way that it works in terms of power and hierarchy. And I can't understand the world any differently anymore. So therefore, I must do something about it. You know, I was making sense of the fact that my mother and father had very a a very patriarchal 
equal relationship. My mother was a garment worker. Why did she have to work in such poor working conditions? And why did I feel so out of place in a majority white, very privileged college environment? All of those things forced me to seek out answers. And college is a place where you get the language to describe what that is, you know? And so that's what I was really super hype about, guys. I was like a born again activist. Wow. And you know, when people are like, I don't know what I'm going to do. What am I going to major in? For me, it was like a foregone conclusion. I'm going to probably major in poli-sci and policy, maybe work in politics or become a lawyer. And it was, it was easy as that. Yeah. So I worked in nonprofits. I eventually found myself in the labor movement because I was like, oh, they're very powerful. They get shit done. I can see myself having a career in there. I met other like-minded folks who gave up most of their childbearing 20s to the movement, to the cause, just working way too hard, drinking way too much, door knocking, Mm -hmm. phone banking. You know, I was so committed. I like learned Spanish so I could do phone banking in, in Spanish. You know, just straight up like, podemos contar con su voto? Like, just straight up like, uh, can we count on your vote in Spanish? Like, yes, this is who I was. But during this whole time, and even in college, performing poetry and doing community events was a way that we as student activists and student groups got together. And that's where I found my love of performing. Um, You know, I started writing poetry. I performed it. I wouldn't call myself a spoken word poet, but I was a poet that performed. I Even in, in LA, I performed a lot and in a space called Tuesday Night Cafe, Tuesday Night Project. Yes. It's a legendary Los Angeles space that has been over two decades running. I became an associate artist, like a resident artist there as a performer and a poet. So around town, I actually was known as a poet. I even got scouted by an, like an NBC casting person to be like, hey, do you write your own stuff and perform. And I was like, no, fool, I'm like working in politics. What are you talking about? You know, I like denied that part of me and didn't take it seriously until I just got burned out by the labor movement and was like, I got to be creative. Do you feel like all of these threads were ways for you to, you know, like in college at that age, we're all trying to figure out like the path that we are supposed to go down. Yeah. And whether that's labor organizing or even poetry at the time, do yeah. you feel like both of those directions felt like ways for you to make sense of your place in the world? A hundred percent. You know, like whenever people are like, how did you know you're going to be a comedian? No one tells little Asian immigrant girls you should be a comedian. But you know what? Back then, you know, within the last couple decades, the more likely spaces that I was welcome in was spoken word and poetry spaces. Do you know how many spoken word artists of color who are Asian American or whatnot, who from the 90s and on, who all should have probably gotten an overall deal. You know what I mean? Mm. And 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 had their stories and their content made into television or feature films. Like people yeah. like D'Lo, Christina Wong. Like there's a bunch of people that I looked up to that I was like, oh, dude, what they do is super cool. And I feel like if the zeitgeist just was a little earlier, I feel like they could have more quickly scooped up a bunch of talent. You know what I mean? But that just means the industry can right now look back on the people who are putting in the work. Yeah. For their talent pools. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's just a very like long way to say I got burnt out by politics, but I realized that this thing I did on the side was something that really fueled me. And it's like, YOLO, life's too short. Like, oh my God, like I just need to go toward the joy. 
go toward mm-hmm. the thing that feeds me, which is writing and telling stories and delighting people, making people feel things. I think for a lot of us growing up, and I think you've mentioned, you know, there were so few Asians in comedy or in the comedy space to look up to. Um, I still remember the first time I saw Margaret Cho on TV. Like, yeah. and it was a stand-up yeah. special. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, can, can you talk a little bit more? Like, what was it like for you? And was it intentional for you to make your comedy a round identity? I mean, there was no intent. You know, I'm a part of a crop of Asian Americans who were very influenced by ethnic studies and Asian American studies. Like my friend, like Phil Yu, Angry Asian Man, mm-hmm. and a bunch of other people that you might consider sort of like Asian American social influencers or Asian American Twitter or whatnot, who out the gate were talking about identity issues and Asian American issues. A lot of us were like student activists in Asian American studies or Asian American student politics in college. And so for me to talk about my identity was going to be, you know, it was just going to (laughs) happen. Yeah. But when I started about 10 years ago, I was very aware of the fact that Hollywood loved to pigeonhole people. Right. And today people are playwrights. They're writing for TV and film, vice versa. But if you remember not so long ago, there was a huge firewall between so many things. Everyone was very pigeonholed and siloed off Mm -hmm. from each other. And there was a dynamic where some people were dismissively pigeonholed as race comedians or ethnic comedians who Mm. only talked about their identity, who couldn't go mainstream or couldn't draw a mainstream audience. And mainstream was code for white. And so I was very aware of that at first when I started. My social media commentary was not at all explicitly political or Asian American, some Asian American, but it wasn't until you know, Mike Brown Jr. was murdered in Ferguson, that my politics and the urgency of needing to speak out about certain things really came to the forefront. And I was just like, me and my, fuck this. So for a hot minute, when that happened, I became like, uh, like almost like a news curator and summarizer for people who couldn't read all the articles and know what was going on with the Ferguson situation. And so that was a huge turning point for me to be like, you know what? I can't deny who I am. I just have to be who I am. And luckily, I feel like me and people like me have pushed the conversation to make the industry much more open to being more explicitly political or being more aware of representation issues. And so I am um, very happy about that. And I 100% have been benefiting from that. Like, I know I've been benefiting from the openness with which you have been doing that, with which you've used your voice on Twitter, on Instagram, in your online videos that you make, because your your comedy videos, so many of them make a point that needs to be heard. Yeah. And even if it's like an awakening that certain worlds on Twitter have had in the last few years to be unapologetic yes. in embracing and voicing and vocalizing and amplifying, that net result for me has been to encourage me to think more, to mm. say more. Um, but it's also still like very intimidating. Yeah. The idea of being courageous enough to speak out, being courageous enough to, to even send a tweet sometimes. Yeah. Well, I take that as a compliment and that really means a lot to me to say that like my speaking up makes you feel more empowered to do so too, because that's the world I want to live in. 
Unfortunately, it still takes a little bit of risk for people to speak out, hopefully less so now. But like, you know, when the Atlanta spa shootings happened, I lost a month from just, you know, (laughs) needing to recover emotionally. And because, you know, when it happened, I tweeted out a series of things that went very viral because to me, it captured the frustration it, it has been as an Asian woman being in this world. And I very much like maybe a lot of other Asian American women connected with the people that were victimized in that mass shooting. And so just doing those tweets made me feel vulnerable and made me feel exposed because when you do that, especially if you say something that makes you go viral, um, I've experienced this many times before. Journalists and other people want you to keep speaking up. They will DM you to say, can you say something about this? They want you to talk about your pain and your trauma as a talking head, you know, on a show. They want to interview you for an article, which I am so blessed to have a platform. But I'm also so happy that more and more people are speaking up. So I'm not one of the handful of people that you might think of, you know what I mean, to get like a quote. So I just said, I said my tweets. Bye. Let me go sleep and drink lots of water and stay hydrated because I've been too upset about this. I need to recover. But that's self-care. That is is also self-care. And it's required to to be able to make it through, for example, the month of May, this May 2021. I mean, Heritage Month for the AAPI community, but also such a hard time to be a visible Asian. Yeah. 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 You know, and during the pandemic, with a lot of the heightened racism that was happening, a lot of the heightened violence that was happening against Asians, it just all felt like a lot. I was surprised any one of us could function. I'm still not sure that I that I did function, <laughs> honestly. Like, I don't know about you guys, but I had like such swings of anger and sadness and frustration and yeah wanting to doom scroll and wanting to read and wanting to throw my phone in the ocean yeah i feel like we all went through a collective trauma being in this pandemic as asian americans we went through our own type of trauma during this pandemic so i feel like you know there's so much that we all collectively need to process just being vaccinated is a privilege and now things are opening up, at least in Los Angeles. And I'm barely remembering how I need to be in order to keep track of a schedule. (laughs) Remember schedules? Like literally, I'm like, oh crap. Like I'm usually not that much of a space cadet. I'm like, you know, student council president, agenda (laughs) keeper person, you know? And so for me to like brain fart something like, oh crap, was I supposed to do that? I think it's just a result of like what happens when you're like dealing with like a massive thing that we all went through. Like time yeah. didn't have much meaning for the past, what, 18 months? <laughs> Something yeah. like that at this point? <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Going back, to, I guess, a little bit to your comedy. I wonder, like, do you sometimes wish you could make comedy just for comedy? Like, would your comedy be different if we lived in like a just society where we didn't have to address some of these issues? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> Sure. I mean, you know, it does take double work in order to figure out something to be funny, but also care Mm -hmm. about what you're representing. But, you know, I feel like if I had it my way, I would want all comedians to think that way. It's like, oh, what would the consequence of what you're saying be, you know? And if there is a negative consequence, is that worth it? 
mm-hmm. maybe sometimes you say yes. Like right before the pandemic, I think probably people knew that I was a subject matter expert on Asian American stuff, but I wanted to also have other people know that I'm obsessed with true crime or I'm obsessed with <laughs> the wellness yeah. and self-care industrial complex. And so on March 19th, I was about to launch a monthly variety comedy show called Everything's Fine with Jenny Yang, a competitive self-care comedy show, where all I do is make fun of wellness trends, sort of 70% and 30% talk about how it's helped us. Yes, none of us want to only be asked about like, oh, race stuff, Asian stuff, identity stuff. But we do have to ask about one of your viral bits because it was so funny. Oh, thanks. What was it? It's the video that you made after Andrew Yang wrote (laughs) an op-ed in the Washington Post suggesting that Asian Americans, in the face of racism and violence, simply, quote, show without a shadow of a doubt that we are Americans who will do our part for our country. The coronavirus has a lot of Americans scared of Asians. So Andrew Yang says we can't make them be less racist. We just have to be more American. Let's see if that works. Come on. I'm ready to be more American. Proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. And you did this going out into the world, which A, was a brave act in itself at the time. And you're wearing red, white, and blue. You were holding a sign, asking people to honk if they wouldn't hate crime you. USA, USA, USA. Everyone not honking is not a patriot. Will you not hate crime me? USA, USA. Hi, would you like a Clorox wipe? I'm giving them out. It's just a service to the community because I'm an American. You were doing all acts of of miniature civic service. And it was funny for many reasons, but one of the biggest reasons it was funny is because it made the point. And I, I now wonder, do you think Andrew Yang saw your video? Yeah, oh, for sure. <laughs> you think so? Hell yeah. I wonder if the point was hammered home. I hope so. I believe he saw my thing because he's friends with m- friends of mine and uh, we are one degree separated. So I hope he saw it. I mean, he responded and actually had to make another statement trying to mm-hmm. clarify. But it's like, no, you mm-hmm. put this in print for a Washington Post op-ed. You know what I mean? So I, someone vetted it, you wrote it or someone edited it for you. And you said yes to it. You co-signed it. So, you know, Andrew, thank you for saying it's funny. Thank you for saying it makes a point. It was just a big eye roll for me. I got so mad. You know, I I remained very non-commenting about Andrew Yang's candidacy up until that point. And then the, the moment he decided to address Asian Americans to say, guess what? My advice is to be more American than everyone else in order to not receive anti-Asian hate was just so asinine and bullshit and frankly dangerous. And so it just made me so mad. I literally made that video or like shot it in like two hours of like a a fugue state of anger. And then like, like straight up, like making the sign all two hours, everything, everything, shooting it, editing it for the next 12 hours. And then I put it out. I was just like, I can't, I fucking can't, you know, because to me, I feel like I, you know, I have a small platform and I have an ability to try to make a point. And if someone else doesn't make this point, I would like to do it, especially if I could do it in a form of comedy that keeps people entertained while I make the point. And so I hope that I highlight the absurdity of his suggestion. 
It's also cathartic just to hear you say the words to people, strangers. Like, will you hate crime me? Because that sometimes crosses through my head. Maybe not for me, but sometimes like with my mom going out, I'm like, oh, like how dangerous is it for you right now around these other people? Yeah, I I, I did that video, um, I think in April or mm. early May. And so that was when it still felt really scary to be out on the streets. It was actually very quiet out on the streets. We still didn't quite know how transmissible everything was. And I had already started to hear the drumbeat of anti-Asian racism. It wasn't until within the last few months that we got more of the graphic videos of people being beat up. So this was before that. And so for me, I already knew it was coming. I already experienced some of that hate within the first couple weeks of everything being locked down. You know, I was out on the street, the same street where I shot that video. I was on the street corner, maybe a week after the lockdown where I was trying to buy groceries and um, a white guy pulled up in a pickup truck uh, and slowed down in front of me, even though he had a green light and looked at me menacingly and flipped me off with both of his middle fingers and then drove off. And, you know, mm. I knew I knew what that meant. You know, I've experienced racism before as a kid and growing up. And I know when I'm being singled out, even if he didn't call me a, 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 an anti-Asian name, mm. I knew what it was about. He just stopped to flip me off a week after everything got locked down and people calling it the, the Kung flu or the China virus. So, you know, it was also driven by that, you know, for, for, for Andrew Yang to say that, it incensed me. Especially knowing that you went out and filmed it in the same place where that incident oh. had happened to you. I didn't know that. Yeah. What I didn't know would happen is that while I was shooting that video, I would get so many honks. And then I actually had this middle-aged white lady and her teenage son flag me down on one of the corners and talk to me through their window, car window, and say, I just want to tell you, we stand by you. We think it's so upsetting what's happening to you. We don't think it's fair. Like she started crying and then she made me cry. You know, we support you. I don't think it's fair. I was like, oh my God, why are you doing this lady? And it made me cry because she saw me hold up the sign. How many times does that happen when you're doing a comedy bit? <laughs> well... You know, if you're out doing a man on the street, then, yeah, you're going to get random people kind of mm. interacting with you. It's a nice reminder that there are nice people out there. Yeah, it was very it was very nice for her to stop. She's like, I went around the block three times looking for you just so I could stop and, and, and be able to talk to you. More of our conversation with Jenny coming up after the break. Stay with us. Stay with us. Welcome back to Asian Enough. Here is the rest of our conversation with Jenny Yang. I mean, what we're talking about is the pandemic. So the pandemic hit, the world we knew, everything stopped, live shows are on pause, but you found a way to keep comedy shows going virtually inside of Animal Crossing. <laughs> I know. If people don't know what Animal Crossing is, it's a Nintendo Switch video game that is basically Sims but with cute Japanese characters. You made you made you made treasure out of Animal Crossing. I did. <laughs> you know? 
Who the fuck does that? This is bullshit. <laughs> um, and that's just one of the, you know, like the very online ways you found your audience, you know, while most of us, all of us were isolated. Yeah. Now that life is opening up again, are you ready for a return to quote unquote normalcy? Because I am not. Yeah, I've been saying no to some of the live shows that have popped up already. Um, and I think I'm going to start doing shows in August. I have a mini tour on the East Coast happening just to get my feet wet um, in October. So I want to be ready for that. But no, I, I still feel kind of weird about performing live. I feel, like I said, I feel very fortunate that I'm vaccinated. But yeah, I feel like, you know, I, I really benefited from developing as a comedian through both live performance and also by making videos, you know, and by being online and doing social media work. And so to me, those parallel worlds run simultaneously. And so for me, it's like, okay, well, I guess if live performance is no longer available to us, you know, it was a matter of time before I could figure out like a way to stay in touch with people online. Um, and so I'm just really happy that that I was able to do that with Comedy Crossing. But yeah, no, I'm not quite ready yet to perform live. Even though I'm a little rusty, we're going to have to figure it out. I mean, my version of that is I am, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but I'm not sure I'm ready to go back to karaoke. <gasps> I know. Jen Yamato? I said it and I felt weird as it was leaving my mouth. And I can't believe I'm saying that publicly to anybody, but it's true. I don't know. I don't know. I can't wrap my head around it quite yet. And you know. Yes, you know. I love karaoke myself too. <sighs> karaoke. I grew up in high school going to karaoke rooms, private rooms on, on the weekends wow. all the time in Gardena. You know, a karaoke room is a safe space for yes. Asians. Yes. All right. And for us to not have that confined cave-like safe space with good lighting and high air conditioning, it's, it just feels weird. But I do wonder, you know, like how th how is the world going to look differently to me when I allow myself to go back into it? Well, there's hopefully the world will look different in that we will have much better public health safeguards mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. so that we feel safe to go into confined spaces in public. I don't know. We'll see. I'm supposed to be touring in a confined space. So good luck to me and my immune system. Right? I can't even imagine talking to more than three people at once, let alone a room full of people. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess, how else, you know, how how else have you been, you know, looking at things differently after this last year? Do you feel like the pandemic has changed you? Or is that one of those, it's like the false expectations where people assume we should have grown or changed or learned something during this time? Yeah, I think we should be kinder and more compassionate and more down to earth with each other. You know, you were doing, you know, Zoom meetings for work where you saw people's kitchens. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Do dogs mm -hmm. and random children ran through. Like anyone who could sort of pretend to be above you or condescend to you, they got humbled. Everyone got humbled. You know what I mean? There was less chance for artifice when you're just talking through a video chat, you know? I don't know. I feel like we should definitely embrace a continuation of loose pants. Yes. I definitely believe in a shorter workday. I feel like people, when they were doing Zoom work, they realized that you can't be staring at a monitor like eight hours a day, maybe five max. But I also think with a lot of the diversity and equity stuff that was happening prior to the pandemic, 
I really hope that we continue to not give a fuck and just demand our space. You know what I mean? We need to stop self-censoring, stop asking for permission, give ourselves the permission to pitch the stories we want to see, make the things we want to make, and to accept nothing less. Because I think if both the Me Too movement and other sort of movements that are trying to push for equity and inclusion, what those movements have taught us is once we raise people's consciousness about what is no longer acceptable, there's no going back. And we have to keep people accountable for that. So that's what I believe. I think, especially as Asian Americans in particular, there should be no regression. We should continue to say, yeah, you said you wanted to do better. Let's do better. You know what I mean? Like, let's just, let's just do better. Yeah. I feel like it's so helpful probably that you have the foundation that you have in your past life as an organizer. Yes. All of the activism that you sort of naturally gravitated towards anyway is now just coming out in even the things you say in casual conversation. (laughs) It's evident in the work that you create. And I feel like it's it's interesting because I think about how we have to remind ourselves so often in the entertainment world that representation does not equal change, right? Representation alone is not the answer. But there's something meaningful to meaningful representation when it's backed up by, like, an understanding of history and an understanding of how systems need to change. Yeah. Systems means who are you paying? Are you putting up the budget? If it's a Black, Indigenous, POC production, are you giving them less money than you would otherwise? You know what I mean? Like, are you asking for people to do double the work? How are you supporting us, you know? To me, all of these issues, I've seen them before when I used to do student activism in college around these things. My year, we had the most students of color ever in an incoming freshman class for my small liberal arts, mostly white college. And they freaked out. The institution freaked out. They were afraid that a lot of us were not going to do as well in school, that we weren't ready or prepared. But you let us in and now you need to also support us because you can't expect us to have the same essay writing ability as the kid who is a typical white kid who's the child of a Harvard professor. You just can't expect that. But you did see that we have potential and that we have some level of academic achievement and ability. So there's a lot of sort of like cultural competency. There's a lot of um, shifting culture, which is how you treat people, the norms for what's acceptable or not acceptable in an environment that people need to be more aware of, you know? And you have to change that. Like, who's the crew that you're hiring? What are the practices for making decisions? Like all of those things need to be in question. Yeah. So, okay, you're you're now currently working on a TV show. Yes. Writing TV. Yeah. The show is Gordita Chronicles. It sounds so exciting. I really want to see it already. It's oh my God. It's so cute. 12-year-old immigrant girl who moves to Miami in the 80s. Yes, I want it. Yes. Yes, an 80s period piece. The family's from the Dominican Republic. They moved to 80s Miami, hedonistic 80s Miami. There's going to be a lot of lovely 80s pop culture references and allusions to classic 80s movies and TV shows. Um, It's about this family searching for the American dream, but also I'm learning so much about Dominican stuff and Miami stuff. 
Like that's what's fun about it. But you know, there's a lot of heart. It's like a family comedy that hopefully everyone will like, like Modern Family or Blackish, but Dominican. Um, I mean, we've talked a little bit about your your comedy, but being a staff writer on a sitcom is very different from being a stand up comedian. Yeah. I guess, how are you stretching yourself differently at this point in your career? Like, what different creative muscles do you want to flex down the line? Well, I do love performing stand-up comedy and writing it, as well as working collaboratively on television. And so I just want to do both as much as possible. Like, let's be honest, I'm already freaking living the dream. I just want to do more of it, work with more interesting people. I want to sell some shows I want to make it. Who knows? Maybe, you know, I'm going to build a mini empire of of showmaking. Down with that. Who knows? I love that. <laughs> I'm ready for it. Give me the Jenny Yang pyre. Yes. The, Je- the Jenny Yang pyre. What? Okay. Are you good with words? You're good with words, aren't you? Do you do that for I a living? I will name your production companies. Everybody out there. <laughs> the Yang pyre. I like that. <laughs> Okay, so we are nearing the end of our time with you. But before we get into our confession segment. Yes. uh, I do want to reclaim a little bit of Asian American joyfulness and self-love. Two things that I always feel like you put out into the world in this beautiful way. Oh, thank you. I want to ask both of you, Tracy and Jenny, what is bringing you joy these days? One thing that has brought me joy in the last few weeks is, of all things, a conversation about earwax. (laughs) A conversation about earwax between Jenny Yang and your Korean dad, Nick Cho, that is the last thing I ever, ever expected to see whilst scrolling through my Twitter feed and my Instagram one night. Tweets turned into a full-on Instagram live video in which I watched a device go into an ear. Are we ready to go into my ear? You want to see how clean my ear is? Check this out. Okay, we're, go- we're going in. Are you ready? Yeah. Ew. Ew. Oh, my God. It's making me t- feel tingly doing Ugh. Oh, my God. That's my eardrum. <laughs> Look how clean my ear is. I'm so proud. <laughs> Why is this so gross? I I can't. The resolution is way too high. This is <laughs> like I've stared down the ear. Oh my god! I don't want to look at it. But you know what hooked me is you and Nick Cho talked about these little Asian, I guess Asian ear scoop thing. I don't even know what the name ear is. Spoons, ear spoons, ear scoops, whatever. Uh huh. There, yeah. some. I'm sure somebody out there like trademarked it. These ear spoons that gave me such a flashback to my childhood when I would lay on my mother's lap and she would use these Japanese, like, wooden ear scoopy things. To, and we called it... Mimi Kaki is what we called it. Yeah, we called it Mimi Goso Goso. Oh, my God. <laughs> Tracy, yes. That's cute. But until you... <laughs> until you two started talking about earwax in all of its glory... I did not know that that was such a common experience. I I, did not know. I had no idea. It's one of those things that is like so intimate. It's, It's about hygiene and our bodies. And it's such a common experience for a lot of East Asians because apparently, and I didn't know this, 
earwax had different consistencies. It's gross. I know. If this is going to gross you no, out, content warning. Let's lean into it. Where we've come this far. I know. Apparently, we have genes as East Asians that make us sweat less and probably not have BO and probably give us good skin, but also that create more dry earwax, right? So it's more sort of dry and like flaky rather than apparently, I, and I did not know this, other people's earwax is not like that. It's more huh. wet and goopy. Huh. So more what they call peanut butter earwax. Oh, no, no. I know. And so I always never understood why no. like white people used Q-tips. I'm like, you're just shoving in the flakiness into your eardrum. Why would you do that? But whatever, to each their own. I, you know, white people secrets. But um, <laughs> I, I 100% was just like one day like, oh yeah, this is a thing. It's a thing. I did not know. And so Nick Cho, who's a viral sensation on TikTok, you're a Korean dad. Um, he's a friend of mine and he was like, oh, by the way, I bought a scope that goes into the ear so you can do it yourself and see where the earwax is and, and clear it out. And that's a thing. So we did an IG live. Listen, <laughs> this is my joy these days. You know, because of this last year of the pandemic, because of how emotionally taxing the pandemic has been, anti-Asian hate has been, I honestly have been off social media. I haven't been posting as much. I haven't been making content for social media as much. I've been loathe to like promote as many things or do promotional things. Cause I'll, I'll get asked to do sponsorships and like, you know mm. what I mean? Like influencer type things, Oh wow! but really? I don't say yes to as many of those things um, because I'm just tired emotionally. And so I will only post whatever feeds my soul. And for that night, what fed my soul was talking to my Twitter followers about ear scoops, because it is this thing we've never talked about, but everyone got their minds blown by the fact that we have a special gene and that we actually share this very mm-hmm. intimate home experience of having our mothers or fathers, you know what I mean, caring for our inner ears. Okay, so Tracy, what's the thing that has brought you joy? <laughs> um, you know, I just read a book. It's called Sharky Malarkey by Megan Nicole Dong. It was been sitting on my shelf for a while. It's like I was trying to find stuff that right, like Asian American creators did. It's a sketchbook of her art. She's like a cartoonist. So it's just a bunch of really weird, like anthropomorphic art. There's like a shark that's trying to break it into Hollywood. It's colorful and vibrant and weird. I just like that it's so weird. There's like animals with human hands, but even little relevant things like uh, there's a toad character and some other animal is like, my last girlfriend was a frog. I'm super into amphibian culture. Oh my God, (laughs) that's funny. (laughs) And stuff like that. So yeah, thank you. Thank you, Megan Nicole Dunk, for that book. (laughs) I mean, I already shared my joy, which is sharing about earwax. We chose the same thing. (laughs) No, but I've also been really enjoying um, all the Asian American authors that have put out books during this Mm -hmm. last year, honestly. And I have to make my Mm -hmm. way through it from Mm -hmm. Johnny Sun to Sarah Kuhn, Jenny Zhang. I have like a stack of books that I'm excited to read. Yeah, Yeah. that's been exciting. But other than that, earwax, (laughs) Jen, earwax. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm a thousand percent with you. Confession time? It's confession time. Tracy and I have unloaded many a confession on this show. Um, But uh, this is a time where we each share a moment or thing that made us feel perhaps not Asian enough. And then we basically, we sit around and we toss it around and commiserate. 
and exploded in the little bite-sized pieces so that we can digest and process them. I'll offer up one inspired by this conversation. And this is honestly, this is like okay. slightly nerve-wracking. My confession is that I have not really ever gone to an L.A. Asian comedy show. And I feel bad about that. I do. But hear, Jen, hear me out. Are you not talking to someone who for many years produced an Asian L.A. comedy I know. I know, sure. I know. That's why I'm saying that's why I'm saying this is a very scary confession to make. But the reason why is because comedy shows in general are a thing that intimidate me. Yeah. Well, why so do you I, think that they intimidated you? Yeah, it's a good question. Because you're probably the only Asian and they might pick on you? Possibly. That has crossed my mind. Because that's what a yes. lot of people told mm-hmm. me when I first started to produce um my, my tour, we don't do it anymore, but it's called Disoriented Comedy. We used to do two shows a month around the country. Everyone would afterwards would say that, would say, I went to one comedy show one time and got picked on. It's like, why would I go and spend my money there? And so they would come to our shows. They see a variety of talents from a variety of Asian backgrounds and got, had a great time. And so, Jen, you were just not experiencing the right shows. I'm sure you're right. And thank you for for taking that so Gently, for receiving it so gently and and oh yeah, outwardly. Care. But you you are dead to me inside yeah, now. I, I get it. That's fair. That's fair. Yeah, Tracy. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, this is a scary confession for me in your presence. I do not go or participate in karaoke until my mid twenties. <gasps> That's okay. That's all right. Even though I grew up. In, you know, like Long Beach. County, Long Beach. Around Asians. Right, around Asians. I knew of the existence of like the private room karaoke's. I've been to parties where karaoke was present. I was just very good at flying under the radar and not participating. Why? Why is that? I think when I was little, <laughs> um, I had transferred elementary schools and like after lunch was for chorus for some of the kids, but you had to try out to do it. And so I tried out but the teacher was too nice to tell me I was bad. So she kept making me go back every week for like an individual tryout, even though I was like, but I don't I don't even want to do this anymore. So I think I just did not want to like sing in front of people for a very Aww. long time. I'm sorry, Tracy. That's okay. But someday it's going to hit you. I mean, you started going, but like, I feel like someday every Asian realizes that the repression they feel in their heart is finally overcome by the opportunity to express themselves in a karaoke mm, room. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sheer emotional catharsis. That's why That's why Japanese people invented it. Mm-hmm. Okay, Jenny, do you have a confession for us? Yes. Um, let's see. You know, one thing that comes to mind was, you know, when I was like in the fifth grade or something, I went back to Taiwan where I was born and... Um, the thing that was kind of traumatizing was like all of my family and the family friends were just like, you're so chubby. Wow. You really drank so much American milk, huh? Which was a hundred percent like, wow, America changed you. You're fat now. (laughs) And that made me not Asian enough. And, but in a weird way, I like leaned into it because I probably ate to, you know, nurture my feelings as a little chubby kid, but like a hundred percent, like I was also like, yo, 
McDonald's in Taiwan in the 90s, your hamburgers were so good. I literally ate two Big Macs one time and two Big Macs because it was so good. Just really good, solid fat kid stuff. And my mom laughed about it and would tell everyone. So she reinforced <laughs> oh, so she no. reinforced the stereotype that I was just became this big, fat American girl now. You know what I mean? I will say this is also like just a thought that I had never thought anybody else had was that, you know, all these got milk ads that were pushed upon kids in America in the 90s. My parents made us drink milk every single mm-hmm. night also. I was made to drink it every night. My, literally, every the night. moment I moved to America when I was five years old and I was given the name, you're going to have an English name now, Jenny, Jenny. And by the way, you're going to have to drink milk every day because that's what American kids do. Literally, I got this little teacup. Like I was so short because I was five, shoved toward me on the countertop and a little dime slid across the counter toward that cup to be like, if you drink this cup, one cup every day, you will get a dime every night. Oh, wow. At least there was a transaction. (laughs) I know. That's how I built up my piggy bank and my tolerance for lactose. And uh, I was never looking back. I had cereal every day for most of my childhood. (laughs) Same. We were a, I didn't know people drank water. I just assumed when you were thirsty, you drank milk. I was like, you get tea or you get milk. (laughs) (laughs) That is so Asian American to be like, my two beverages are tea or milk. Do you have an Asian enough confession you want to share with us? Call us at 213-986-5652. That's 213-986-5652. Okay, that's it from us here at Asian Enough. Thank you to Jenny Yang for joining us and thank you to you, our listeners, for listening. And don't forget, if you love the show, please, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or recommend us to a friend or follow us on Instagram. You can find us at at Asian Enough Pod. We absolutely love hearing from you. But before we sign off, we would like to take a moment to thank and celebrate someone whose name you've probably heard a lot on this podcast, that is if you usually make it this far into the credits. That is Abby Fentress Swanson, executive producer of podcasts and audio here at the LA Times and exec producer of the show. Abby is saying goodbye to the Times and to us. And so we must say bon voyage and thank her for believing in the show, for believing in us, and for helping launch Asian Enough because without her, the show would not exist. So without further ado... Asian Enough is hosted by me, Jen Yamato. And by me, Tracy Brown. Our producer is Asal Sanapur, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin. Our original music was composed by Andrew Epen. This podcast was created by Jen Yamato and Frank Shum. Special thanks to Shawnee Hilton, Clint Shaw, Jeff Berkshire, James Reed, and Matt Brennan. This podcast is dedicated to the memory of our founding producer, Lina Onwar. Additional thanks to Jenny Yang for letting us play a bit of her comedy video titled Andrew Yang Said Be More American to Fight Anti-Asian Racism During Coronavirus. And a big, big thank you to Nick Cho, a.k.a. Your Korean Dad, for letting us share a bit of the magical and extremely informative earwax odyssey that he and Jenny went on on Instagram Live. 
come back next week for another great episode because Tracy and I will be chatting with the icon, the artist, actress, filmmaker, and independent woman, Lucy Liu. And a lot of people had said to me, well, there's nobody that's out there. There's no, there's not a lot of Asian presence in media and television, film. You're going to be very limited and you're never, you're never going to make it. And I just thought, I don't know what that means. I don't know what never means. So let's just try. And remember, some of us actually are from L.A. In the industry, there's so many people from outside of Southern California who come here to do their work. And sometimes when they talk amongst each other, they're like, oh my God, no one's from L.A. And I'm like, no, bitch, I am. So are all the people I grew up with. So are other people that I know who are in comedy. Like, I always love finding out that they grew up in L.A., you know? 